Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to the Future of Work, Water Cooler Conversations radio show and podcast, where local business leaders share how they integrate humanity and technology through innovative approaches, healthy culture, flexible workspaces, and seamless virtual technology. We're your hosts, Jennifer Burwell and Kyle McIntosh. This podcast is brought to you by Max6, building better communities where people and businesses thrive. And first, uh, hey, Jen, how are you doing today? I am well. We have switched spots. Typically, I am virtual and you are in studio and now we've flip-flopped. So hello from the other side. Um, today, I'd like we are so excited, and I'd like to introduce our guest, um, Andy Maurer, who's CEO and emotional wellness coach, who we were just reflecting. We met about two years ago, right around this time, because I was about to go on maternity leave, and today is my daughter's second birthday, so it's a two-year um, anniversary for Andy and I. And Kyle, I know that you've connected um, with Andy more recently. So we are so excited. We thought that you'd be the perfect guest as we talk about the future of work, what it looks like, and what we all need as we come out of the chaos that has been the last year plus. So we always like to start and just learn a little bit more about you, um, Andy. So if you could just share a little bit about where you grew up and how'd you get from there to here, where you are today. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited Mm -hmm. to be here. Um, I know both of you, and it's been fun to kind of reconnect um, a little two years later. (laughs) I am an emotional wellness coach, um, but I didn't start out there. I actually started out as a personal trainer. So I started out really working with the external kind of physical health dynamics of different people. I had my own business for 10 years. Um, I did personal training. In that process, I really started to realize that I could construct someone's body to look a certain way on the outside, but on the inside, it didn't really change a whole lot of what was going on Mm -hmm. deep beneath the surface. And those were actually the harder things to change. And that inspired me to want to go back and not only go back for therapy or for counseling, but also really start to do a lot more deeper work for myself. At that time, as I went through my graduate program, I was doing two master's degrees at the same time, and I had three jobs, and I had a newborn at home, and I had to come face-to-face. I had previously, but I think more recently, kind of in the early stages of marriage and having kiddos, and face-to-face with the reality that, wow, I... I'm on this treadmill of performance and I'm afraid that if I don't get it right, if I don't perform, if I don't be somebody, who would want me or who would value me for what I have to offer? I always felt like I had to put a nugget out there or have something to offer in order for people to want to you know, stick around. And I really had to face that and deal with that. And as I got into therapy, starting to working with people, I saw everybody from adolescents to parents to couples, individuals. But um, as time went on, I started to see one clientele a lot, and that was business leaders. And they kept coming in and with similar issues, not always the same, but similar type issues. And I I could connect with them because some of their similar issues that they were facing, I also felt my own life. As a therapist, you spend the majority of your time not talking about yourself, but really showing up for the person across the room. And I realized for these leaders, 
that's essentially what they're doing in their lives and in their work is they're constantly pouring out for others. And yet no one is kind of above them to pour into them on an emotional level. And within that, there's a lot of spaces inside that they felt like they had to shear up and kind of armor up against because they had this image and this persona. And the thing that happened is the higher they went up into success, the more money they made, um, the more influence they had, that world inside actually got more pressure. It got smaller. Um, so their ability to be authentic and real with others, with their family, uh, was harder. And I made a decision to jump out on my own to be an emotional wellness coach for leaders because I wanted to be that person to come above leaders so that they have a place to open up and to share what's actually happening on, on the inside so that in their pursuit of success, which I want for them, they don't lose the most important things in their life. And that was really important to me because I saw so many leaders pursuing success and then looking back 10, 20, 30 years later and realizing, wow, I, I lost my family. I lost my relationships. I lost everything that I can't buy with money. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, it's so interesting. There, there is a lot there, and I have so many questions in my head. And, and when we first spoke, I think it was the first time that I really thought about leaders in that way that it's lonely at the top, right? And you do have, feel like you have leaders feel like they have to know the answers and they have to lead and they have to, you know, give support to all of the people that they're they're responsible for that they work with and and who does that for leaders. So. Mm-hmm. It is um, interesting, and a lot of the leaders that I know in my life have experienced those similar things and haven't had an outlet to of where to turn. So I think it's really, really valuable work, and um, I was so excited to meet you um, a few years ago. But if we go back, we always like to start a little bit earlier. If we go all the way back, like where did you grow up? Because we want to understand how, like how did you even get on the track of physical training? So I lived actually pretty close to here. I lived kind of in South Phoenix for a little bit, and then I moved over here um, about a mile from Max 6. Mm. And I grew up going to a smaller Christian school called Grace Community. I was homeschooled, and then I went in at fourth grade all the way through, and then I went to Tempe High School, mm. and then I went to ASU, and then I went to two different seminaries in Phoenix for my master's degrees. So I grew up in the city of Tempe. You know, wow. the college kind of zone, that environment, which is really fun. And as I was growing up, there were there were a couple points in my life that uh, were tension points that kind of created conflict inside of me. And one of those that I've shared really openly is that I had a condition called hyperhidrosis, which means that my hands and my armpits and my feet, they sweated constantly. And as I went through life, I realized more people actually have this condition. About 1% of the population has this condition. Um, But what was so difficult was in grade school, in those formative years between fourth grade and eighth grade, I was struggling so bad that I couldn't even do my homework. I couldn't even write answers in school because my, my paper, my pencil would be completely drenched. I'd have to take extra shirts to school and kind of change. I couldn't do gymnastics, which I really craved to do. I wanted to do because I knew my hands and my feet sweated and I had to wear my shoes. So very socially isolating, very mm-hmm. painful. And I didn't quite know how to work through that, this is really a journey to how I understood my body, which was I felt frustrated that my body really was betraying me. Like mm-hmm. I didn't do anything to acquire hyperhidrosis. So why is my body not working the way that it's supposed to work? Mm-hmm. And I started to really hide 
and I started to get into some addiction and different things. I started to hide a lot of myself because there was a lot of pain there. And really the pathway to fitness and to health, I think, as I reflect back on it, was really this kind of redeeming space for me of taking the brokenness that I felt in my body and really feeling a lot of pride and joy in my body, mm -hmm. actually using my body as a way to feel healthy, um, a way to look and feel confident. I overdid that at different points. That became my identity. But I think now I have a really balanced perspective that I really, I love my body. I enjoy what my body's able to do. And fitness and health has always been something mm -hmm. for me that has been an outlet, but also a place of kind of healing my relationship with my body. Um, so that's initially what I wanted to get into. And then I switched because I really had a lot of key leaders kind of step in and work on the inner life. And I mm -hmm. wanted to now, you know, help people heal in those areas as well. I'm always so curious, like what, do you remember a specific trigger? What was the turning point for you from going from, you know, my body's betraying me and, and all of the emotion around that to I'm going to figure out how to make this into something good? Like what, what was the change? Mm. Well, one of the helpful things was I actually did get a surgery around seventh or eighth grade. Um, actually, no, early in high school where I stopped sweating on my hands and my armpits. I still sweat on my feet today and my chest and my back quite a bit. And that was just a ton of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> I could shake people's hands. I could connect with them. And I didn't realize how empty I was for that connection because I hadn't experienced that so much. So I think the turning point was that surgery for sure. And that's why I love, you know, when people deal with emotional issues, it is helpful to reach for outside things sometimes to navigate and deal with that emotion because like medication or different things, I, I had a surgery and it really kind of freed me up then. Mm -hmm. It didn't solve a lot of those issues, but it freed me up to then do a lot of work in some of those areas. Um, so that was kind of a turning point for me where I realized, oh, now I can actually feel a little bit more confident and secure. Yeah, that's great. I, I think um, sometimes we feel pressure to like try to solve everything ourselves. And, you know, it's really that combination of external things, internal mm -hmm. support. So if we go now to three jobs, two degrees, right? You're pursuing two degrees and a newborn? And at that point, yeah, newborn. So how, do, how mm -hmm. does one do that? I'm just trying to think, like even put myself there because um, I have, well, I guess I have two jobs and three kids, but not a newborn. Hmm. Um, and we talked a little bit about what the motivation there was, um, but kind of take us back to your thought there. And, and Yeah, I, I mean, for me, it was about survival at the time. Yeah. You know, at that time, I needed to have three jobs in sure. order to provide for my family. It wasn't a place of thriving for me. It was really something I needed to do to get through. And, I, you know, that relates a lot with leaders. We do things that we don't want to in order to get through. It's just we have to know that that is a season and not a lifelong choice. Mm -hmm. If we are in survival life, uh, our whole life, that's different than acknowledging I'm in survival right now and I don't know how long I'll be in that, but this is a season and I don't want to stay here, but I kind of need to be here in this place of survival. So I was, I didn't know that at the time until I reflected back and survival is okay. Survival is actually a really good thing. People who can't survive, <laughs> they don't make it. So I'm not, <clears throat> I never shame a leader when they're in a state of survival. I just say, let's make sure that this doesn't become a way of being mm -hmm. um, if this is a stage of life. So how I made sense of that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm built that way. 
Um, honestly, Jennifer, just as a person, I'm a visionary. I can candle a lot on my plate at once. I'm not a detail-oriented person. I kind of have a lot of ideas. Now, my wife is a detail-oriented person. And how we describe this difference <laughs> is that she's the sniper, okay? <laughs> so she will wait and wait and get so precise. She's done a lot of work in, in my business that's really helped it thrive. So precise. And then she will take the one shot that takes out the most important person. <laughs> I go in as the commando. I don't quite know where I'm going. And I'm just kind of like going through, not quite sure, but I'm getting the work done. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm much more of a workhorse. And that's just how I'm built. In that, there are some fallacies in that and some kind of weak points. But I've really learned to not be ashamed of that, but really lean into that and realize I can handle quite a bit. And that trained me to learn how to handle a lot of intensity and complexity. And I'm thankful for that today because I have to deal with a lot of kind of heavy and complex things. That's a great analogy. And it gets to uh, finding the, the real, I mean, skill sets isn't quite the right word, but the real great attributes about each person and how we work together. And uh, the analogy that Jen and I use in our working relationship is that I'm a balloon. It's kind of floating up high and almost a little bit too high sometimes. And she's this rock that makes sure I don't totally fly away. Mm -hmm. You know, when you find people that, that share different attributes than yourself, it, it works so well because uh, you kind of need that balance between uh, it's not good or bad, but it's just, hey, let's let's work at what we're both great at and, and focus there. Yes, absolutely. And I think you said something important that you probably do a lot of this work with with leaders, but for all, everyone is instead of fighting against who you are, you learned how to accept it and and love it. And I think that's the work that I'll, I mean, probably every human is is doing um, on some level is is you fight so hard to not be something versus really understanding what you are and learning to accept it. And I think um, that's a really powerful thing to understand. It's, as I'm learning, very difficult to undertake. Um, but but it's good to see. I, I love when I see examples of powerful leaders who are doing just that and the benefits that come from it. So, Yeah. And I will say with that, the business in general doesn't tease someone up to figure out um, the core of who they are as a person. It tees them up to have to be somebody. Okay, so when you're a CEO or you're a founder, you step into this cultural role or we all have these preconceived notions of what a leader is. And they usually come from, you know, how we saw leaders in our own life. And it's more about the thing that I see with a lot of leaders is they're working so hard like a coat to put on leadership every day and it is exhausting and it drains them. And it's outside of their wheelhouse. Some of the things they're doing instead of recognizing Andy is a leader in his unique way. How do I bring him front and center and to let him really move forward as that being enough? So it's really kind of this working from or working um, towards. Are you working towards your sense of self-worth and trying to be the leader? Or are you acknowledging I am a leader? I'm built for leadership and who I am. It might be different than that other person. And you live out of that identity rather than trying to acquire an identity. That's going to burn you out and that's going to cause exhaustion. We were just talking about that yesterday. Is like the different masks that people put on to wear. Um, when they go to work and how they, you know, you have your work self and your your personal self, and that's amplified definitely when you're the leader. How do you think leaders can help their teams and their employees 
live authentically and show up like from their whole person and not put that mask on as well. So I think it's changed over the years. Uh, I think now, I, I think in other generations, you could not be integrated, which means you could live a completely different lifestyle on the inside and you could say or do things on the outside and get away with it a lot easier. You could communicate to your team what you need from them and then live a completely different lifestyle. Now, I think people are more emotionally intelligent in a lot of ways and sensitive and connected to that, that they want a leader that is congruent from the outside to the inside. So I was just talking to my wife about this last night. I said, man, the work that I do is so difficult. And it's not difficult because I have to learn a lot. The craft of it, the actual technical skills of being a coach is it's not that hard. You can read books, you can, but to be the type of person, <laughs> to be the type of presence that allows my client to open up or to share or to feel safe or to go to those deeper places, that is the hard work. So it's much more about how I am being and it's a lot less about what I am doing. And that is the most difficult thing for leaders to kind of wrap their head around. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day and I communicated to them, what do you want for your clients? And, and she said, I want them to feel a sense of freedom to be who they are. And I'm like, do you have that same sense for yourself? And essentially, no, it was hard for her. But she, I told her, I said, all your language, all your writing, all your podcasts, everything that you communicate will come out of that. They will feel that. Okay. So if you aren't connected... I don't care how much language you use to make it look good. People will start to read the disconnect. So to answer your question, I really think leaders can be there for their people best by being congruent individuals. Okay. We've all seen the devastating impact um, over the last five years of celebrity type leaders saying one thing and doing one thing for years. And then their internal world is a mess. And what that does to culture, what that does to people, to families, is it just, it's a reckoning in society and culture. It doesn't just impact that person. The ripple effect is infinite. And I, I don't think it has to be that way. Yeah. Curious, when someone comes to you, Andy, and says, <clears throat> or, you, or you talk to someone and you're exploring working with that person, what are you, what are you hearing? What are you selling? What are you, what is the value proposition? Is it generally someone that says, I'm a leader and I want to be a better leader for others. And so I won't need to work on myself so that I'm a better leader for others. Or are you still finding whatever version of, I want to look better on the outside, but I don't even uh, know what's going on on the inside. And I want to feel better as an individual, as a person. Uh, and by becoming better, I'll better serve everyone around me. That's a great question. I've been doing a ton of thinking on that. And that essentially goes into, you know, who is my client? What are their issues they're struggling with? And I've really dissected this. Um, some people come in because their hair is on fire and they're in crisis mode. That's one type of individual. Um, but the type of individual that I see actually get the most success and benefit out of the work that I do with them is the type of individual who has had some level of success. They've really reached a point where they have received that success, they've made it. And in the inside, on the inside, they have for the first time in a decade or two decades looked back and realized, whoa, 
I made it, and at the same time, I feel so empty. There are things that are missing. My relationships are kind of imploding, or I don't have relationships. I don't feel close to people. I don't even know who I am anymore. I've acquired the success, which is fantastic, but I feel empty on the inside. And that is a very difficult place for leaders to arrive because there's so much shame in that. Think of how, if if you acquired high levels of success and people think of you as, oh, he or she's really put together. How can they have any issues? They built a $60 million company. For them to actually come out and say, hey, I struggle or I need help or it's difficult for me, that's a lot harder to do when they've progressed to that point of ideal success in our culture, and our world. And what's interesting, Kyle, as you asked that question, as I've been dissecting this, there is not a lot of, there's not a lot of clients who come to me and say, hey, I really want to work with you. What happens is when I go out and I speak, or when I meet with people one-on-one, they begin to open up and they begin to share with me. And I simply ask them, how can I support you? And how can I best help you? And one thing I realize is they need me to pursue them and ask that question because it's so vulnerable and it's so difficult for them to come to me and say, I need help. So it's easier for them for me to meet with them and simply say, I hear you, I see you, I know you. That's really hard. How can I be there for you? I'm going the extra step. I'm taking the vulnerability first to pursue them so that they don't have to take that uncomfortable step of saying, I need help. And some of them do, but some of them, that's new to them. They don't know how to say that. Um, and I think of the difference kind of between therapy and coaching a little bit is with, with when I was in therapy, I literally sat in my office and I just waited for the phone call. I did some, you know, I was out in the community and stuff, but most therapists, they sit and they wait for people that have big enough problems to come in. I don't do that for my clients. I pursue them. I go where they are. I go to the CEO events because I know there's not resources for them. I'm going to go to them and I'm going to make this, um, I'm going to let them know this is available and I'm here for them and I'm going to pursue them first. I don't expect them to take that step first. So that's just some kind of uh, more raw, real thoughts over the last three weeks that I've been having on my client. I think that's a really important insight um, for the world, but also for your business, because I think it is so very true that it's hard to ask for help. And then when you are at that level, I I can only imagine it's a hundred times harder. I think back in my life when it's hard for me personally to ask for help. And when there are people who have shown up and said, let me help you in a true and authentic way. It has been the best gift or blessing that I've ever had. So, um, and let's be honest, most people don't come to the CEO and be like, what do you need today? (laughs) How can I best show up for you? So Mm -hmm. I think when they hear that and they realize, wow, there's someone who's above me to support me. They've been really craving that for a long time. And here's the other thing that I realized Kyle and Jennifer is most leaders are terrified that they will reach the end of their life and have success. They're actually not afraid that they won't acquire success. They are in some ways, but they're more terrified to actually acquire the success and not have relationship or not have anything on the inside. They've essentially lost themselves. And at the same time, they don't know how to not do that. (laughs) So I hear all the time, I'm afraid I will reach that point where I have success, but I don't have people and I don't know myself, but I don't know how to get off that train. I don't know how to get off that treadmill. And what they're really asking for is when they come to me is they're saying, Andy, 
please, somebody help me get off because I don't know how. And they were never taught how, honestly, in their families and in culture. They're not taught how to slow down and dissect what's on the inside. So they can't help but run that road out unless someone intervenes and helps them and walks alongside them. So if you were to, let's say you had a CEO um, that you were working with that is looking that 10 years back and saying, oh, wow, you know, I have all this, but my my personal life's a mess. What advice would you want to give that CEO before the 10 years happens? Like at the very beginning, like what are the things that somebody can put into place to not wake up 10 years later and have emptiness or so many things. <laughs> yeah. It's so different based on the type of person. Sure. I think generally what I would say is do the hard work to understand your story, where you come from, and why you do what you do so that you can change where you're going and what you choose to do. So I'll say that again. I would encourage someone, know your story and where you come from and why you do what you do so you know better where you're going and choosing where you want to go rather than this subconscious treadmill. And and research actually pans this out. A Harvard research professor found that 95% of decision-making is subconscious. So when we talk about subconscious, there's the logical part of our brain, and then anything subconscious is subcortical. It's below the prefrontal cortex. So it's the amygdala, it's the brainstem, it's the emotional brain, it's the fight, flight, or freeze. And what he's essentially saying there is that part of our brain drives us. It's not the logic. It's all the emotion. It's all the pain. It's all the stress. And unless we slow down to acknowledge that, that's like a treadmill that just keeps running until we slow down. And Maya Angelou says, I did what I knew, but when I knew better, I did better. It's this understanding of consciousness of if I can know my story, I can have the power to shift and change my story. But if I don't go there... It's running for me, and I'm just on a treadmill that's instantly going, and I can't get off. We're, I mean, loosely talking about the future of work. Uh, I mean, really, we're, we're talking about something here that hasn't changed in forever in many ways. And I agree with you that uh, people, it seem to be more uh, emotionally intelligent, but it's almost as if people know more but they know that they don't know what they need to know in some degrees. And so how do we take this conversation and make it something that gets talked about? Because I think it's this, it's, it's continuing to be seemingly a bigger issue, the disconnect between the perception of success Mm. and what the reality is of that person's experience. That's a great question. I don't know if I've cracked that nut, but I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) My vision is to work with the highest level leaders in business and entertainment. And the reason for that is because when you work with a leader, when I work with a leader and they experience some transformation, they change in who they are. There are leaders below them who look up to them and it gives them permission. If they went first, I can do it. We see this all the time. We follow leaders. So I'm going to try to go up as high as I can to change the culture up here. So then people below it, they can start being fed by those leaders, but then also look up and say, wow, if they did it, maybe I can do it too. And maybe I don't need to be ashamed to kind of do this deep inner work. And when you talk about the future of work, this is really fascinating. Um, You said something kind of in the intro around 
what it means to be human and technology. I think there are two essential questions that leaders are going to have to figure out as technology becomes more integrated. Those two questions are, and this isn't new, but what does it mean for me to be a human being? And the second question is, what does connection mean? Okay. Now, specifically around COVID, because what COVID did is it it skyrocketed and it propelled and it put jet uh, it put fuel on a fire that was already leading us to disconnection. So now you have people in their homes disconnected. You have people, you know, substance use has gone up, uh, domestic violence has gone up. All of these things have gone up because people are trying to cope with the stress that's around them, and therefore they're getting disconnected from what's on the inside. They're coping but they're not connecting. Those two questions are going to be really hard because as we go on around technology, we're going to actually have to ask hard questions like, am I more machine or more human? The wearable devices that I put in my body, the way that I operate, am I operating more as a machine? And I love technology. I'm a huge fan of technology. But what point does someone become more of machine than actually human? And if we don't have a lens on that or we don't have a guide on that, we will shift. I'll tell you right now, the business culture is not for humanity. I I love to think that it is, and there are certain kind of groups that are. But generally, the cult of business, the ethos of business is you take a leader, you squeeze every potential out of them, you wring them out like a wet towel, and then when they have nothing left, you throw them to the side and you grab a new young leader and you wring them out. Okay, so we treat leaders as an asset to be leveraged, not as a human to be known and loved. And that is essential. So we need to shift our perspective around this is not a machine that can operate at 100 miles per hour continually all the time. This is a human being who, in order for them to work well, okay, it's not like a car. You can't put like sand in the gas tank of a car and expect it to run. You cannot push someone beyond their limits as a human and expect them to perform well. Human beings need connection. They need to be known. They need purpose and impact and meaning. And the research actually bears this out around psychological safety. If you know about Google's Aristotle project, huge study. It was a, a basically um, a, a, a study where they looked at 250 different attributes um, over a long period of time. And they wanted to find what makes a team most successful. They couldn't figure it out because they were looking at these kind of the what categories. They're not looking at the why and how categories. And what they found at the end is they brought in the psychologists and they brought in the sociologists and they're like, we can't figure this out. We're spending a ton of money and a ton of time. We don't know what makes great teams. They found five things that make a team successful. The first was psychological safety, which is that I have the freedom to show up as I am to make mistakes and to not be ashamed in those mistakes. I can be vulnerable. That was the number one category of what made teams successful. The number one. So everything that I'm going to say next doesn't happen unless that one is in place. There are five, but that one is the most important. The second one is dependability, that we can rely on people, depend on people. I'll tell you more and more just in working in the space. Leaders, they're not dependable sometimes. They're all over the place. And that's because most of them are visionaries and they need an integrator. They need that rock to hold them down. Okay. The third thing was um, structure and clarity. They needed to know where they're going They needed to have clarity. The fourth was meaning, a sense of meaning in the work that they do. So now we're we're talking about a lot of heart issues, okay? (laughs) We're talking about a lot of who am I? What's my vision? What's my purpose in this world? And the fifth was impact. 
So really leaders, they need to move from success to impact. They need to be thinking about not how I'm going to be successful in this world, but how am I going to, how am I going to create an impact based on who I am and my uniqueness in this world? So two big questions um, around technology and humanity is what does it mean to be human in an age of technological advancement? And then the second one is, what does it mean to actually connect with people, especially around COVID, because we just have been so disconnected? See, I see a huge opportunity in the business community and wherever it comes from. And I've, I've said this for a long time, that we, we went so fast with technology and we're still going even faster. And we haven't caught up with our ability to humanize this. And so this technological revolution that we've been going through, at what point do we collectively say we need to step back and have a humanization revolution? And how do we rehumanize? Let's pick on Facebook for a second because it's easy because everyone's doing it right now. They seemingly connected everybody, but it in some ways disconnected everybody at the same time. How do we take technology and ask that question, at what point am I not comfortable with that being my identity, but having to rehumanize this and uh, get more connected with myself, with others, uh, using technology just as a tool. I think we're in a weird place where there's more questions than answers with all of that right now. Uh, but I think there's a huge opportunity out there. I think people can sort of see it, feel it, but they just don't know how to navigate it necessarily. Yeah, and that's a hard question. I don't know if I have quite the answers around that question. I do see, though, that something that is originally built to be good can take a, a turn and kind of start to deteriorate that connection that it was meant for. Technology is is not evil in and of itself, okay? It's very neutral. It's a sense of it can be used in different ways, but I would love to see more people not just consuming the technology that's already out there, but thinking strategically about how to create technology that's going to bring about connection. How do we create technology that's going to help someone reconnect with themselves rather than just check out and, you know, lose a sense of identity? So I'm really calling on a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders to say, don't just back out. And don't just consume everything. Start creating the technology that you see as essential for bringing about a sense of humanity. And that's not a lot of my language. That's language from a guy named Andy Crouch, who's a brilliant kind of thinker on, on technology and space and how it gets integrated into how we think about humanity. So this all makes me think about, um, I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago from the um, the people who created The Social Dilemma. They were making their rounds. And they were talking about, you know, kind of what you were talking, we were talking about is this treadmill. And if you think about even 10, 15 years ago, the number of emails that we get 15 years ago compared to what we get now has grown exponentially and the amount of response time and the expectation. So, you know, as soon as you get that ding in your inbox, the expectation or what we think the expectation is, what we feel is they need an immediate response. So our workday has gone from eight or 10 hours to, you know, around the clock, which is causing a lot of burnout for people, which we've talked on a little bit, but I'm sure you have lots of experience around burnout. And and what are you seeing right now? Have you seen an increase in it? Um, what's happening? Well, 
Yes, uh, I felt the increase of it in my own life. Um, Christmas break was really a good point for me to kind of step back and take 10 days off, um, feeling kind of the burn of a really intense, fruitful, amazing quarter. But in all of those good things, good things can be exhausting too. We forget about that, okay? <laughs> Successes and wins can be emotionally exhausting. It's not just like hard things. It's also the highs, okay? So there are four things that I realize and that I've kind of found with the people I work with, the leaders I work with that bring about burnout. The first is that natural stress shifts over and becomes toxic stress, okay? So stress is a really good thing. I want my clients to feel stressed. I want to be stressed. Stress helps us perform. It helps the logical parts of our brain activate. It releases adrenaline and cortisol. It helps us think creatively. But here's how stress should work. It should go up and then it should come down. Toxic stress happens when our stress goes up and it stays up, 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 and it never quite comes down. And that's a result typically of trauma, but it can also be a result of just intensified stress. Think of it like a cup that's filled up to the brim. If you don't know how to drain that stress, every drop on top is going to flood over into a sense of toxic stress. And if I define toxic stress, it is essentially prolonged and elevated levels of stress in the absence of deep connection. Now, let's pause and think about COVID for a second. Prolonged and elevated levels of stress in the absence of deep connection. COVID is a Petri dish for toxic stress. I'm not talking about it politically and what's going on. I'm just saying the nature of it and what it's done to society is a, is a Petri dish for toxic stress. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there is a large distance between who you have to be and who you naturally are. Okay, and I talked about this a little bit before about kind of putting on the coat or just coming forward. If I felt today that I had to be the guy who knows everything about emotional health and I had to be this persona and this personality, and I felt like when I came to this podcast, I had to put on something that I'm not naturally good at or that is not naturally Andy, I would eventually lead into a sense of burnout. And this is hard for leaders because as a leader at the top, one thing I've seen and, and noticed is they have to be lots of things for lots of people. And it's not really who they are. They don't know who they are. They've just become everything for everybody. So there's a large distance between not staying in natural giftings and really moving to what other people need them to do. And there's a time and place for that. But the third thing is that what you show externally is vastly different from what you feel internally. So what you show externally is different than what you feel internally. So if I go around the office and I smile and I'm like, it's good, everything's great. How are you today? Oh, family's awesome. We're killing it. Blah, blah, blah. Inside, I feel lonely, depressed, scared, anxious, but I can't show that because I have this persona that I have to put out there. The further there's distance between those two dichotomies, the greater chance of burnout. And then the fourth one is intense highs and lows. Okay, it is really normal. Like the last quarter was like some super intense highs, some super intense lows. Um, and that's actually what I think kind of tapped me the most is I had these really high highs and really low lows. It's when um, that's really normal in business. <laughs> if you're in business, that's just the nature of it. It's when those high highs either become too frequent or they become too intense. Okay, that will tap you out. 
emotionally and physically. Our adrenal glands and cortisol cannot be excreted into our body so much before our adrenal glands kind of go into a fatigue. They use so much that they just shut down, and we call that adrenal fatigue. And it takes a lot of repair. Highs and lows are emotionally exhausting and physically exhausting. So if you can, space those out and make those a little bit lower. Um, and uh, leaders aren't good at that because they're prone to do a lot of things and pursue chaos because that's the world that they typically know best. They don't know peace and they don't know rest. They know chaos. And that's actually where they thrive. And that's one of the things that makes them so resilient. But there's a time to be good at being resilient in chaos. And then there's a time for rest. So, Annie, that brings up a question. Is there a way that you can make your highs not so high and your lows not so low? Like, do you have, because a lot of times it feels external, like this is happening to me. So how do you moderate your highs and your lows? Um, celebrate your wins and don't bury your struggles. When we pass over our wins, when we're like, oh, that was a win, not big deal. It's just my biggest client I've ever got. I'm not <laughs> going to get another one. When you kind of push those down, you don't get the boost. <laughs> you don't get the energy the identity that comes from, I did this. Wow, like I've worked hard for this. You celebrate the wins. And if you push down the heavy things, the losses, and you don't want to feel those, what we know is like a pressure cooker, okay? So I have a little kind of DeWalt pneumatic air compressor. And after you fill it up, you're supposed to drain it after you fill it up because it's not good to store all that in there, okay? Over time, it could rust and decay. We are very similar where all of these hard things, if we keep pushing them down, that pressure intensifies and we need a blow-off valve to at least feel and acknowledge. I would say the best thing leaders can do is just acknowledge. That was a really crappy week. That was really hard what happened. I felt X, Y, and Z. Um, and share, try to share it with one other person. If you do that, that's like a blow-off valve that's going to release a lot of that. So celebrate your highs and don't minimize or push down your lows is... Seems counterintuitive, but that's actually a way to stay out of those intensities. And you, when you came in and spoke to my Vistage group, one of the things that you talked about was really resonated with me. It was interesting was if you, in your analogy of this cup and you keep filling it up and it's up to the top. And at some point, I think what people think is it just overflows and it's just, I mean, it just creates the uh, a complete breakdown or the air compressor uh, rusts and just completely explodes or something. But when you spoke to these, these three selves that we have in our head all the time, and it's not necessarily the complete implosion, but that uh, pressing down and then what that, what that causes us to do is find this escape mechanism mm -hmm. almost. Yep. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because that that really resonated with me. Is it's not necessarily these complete breakdowns, but this sort of uh, insidious uh, slow march towards this escape. Yes. Uh, for those listeners who are listening, it might be best to watch this component because I'm going to kind of uh, show you a little bit more. I'll speak to it, but it'll be better to show. So, Jennifer, earlier you said um, it's lonely at the top. I would say yes and no. It's lonely for a part of you, and it's not lonely for another party. And let me explain why. Okay, so if this is a leader, and this is what they show on the front, I'm holding up my journal right now, and on the front side, this is what a leader shows. They're put together. They're logical. They're stable. They don't get you know knocked around by a lot. 
And then behind that, there's fear and anxiety, loneliness, um, discouragement, confusion, brokenness in relationships at home and in life. The part that's out front, they're not lonely. (laughs) They're having a great time because everybody loves them. Everybody sees them. Everybody knows them. And this is confusing for leaders. I say, there's a part of you that's lonely. You're not all lonely. This image that you put out, this persona you put out, which isn't all bad, it's a part of you. It's not all of you. That's not the part that's lonely. The part behind the journal, the part behind that image, that's the part that's lonely. And what a lot of people do with that is they take that part and they shove it down. Because here's the dynamic that happens. If we feel lonely or scared or threatened or confused inside, we feel like we have to hide that even more. So we put more on an image. So a way this plays out is I'm having a really hard day. I'm feeling really insecure. I go into a meeting and I over-accentuate my smiles. I over-accentuate my confidence. I over-accentuate you know, my passion because I'm afraid I got to really hide what's behind that. Now, the more we do that, the more we hide and push down that more vulnerable part, we will eventually have to check out and numb out. And that's where we have this other part hop in. <laughs> That is typically that hidden lifestyle. You know, you're binge watching Netflix, you're binging alcohol, you know, there's affairs all over the place. There's all these different things. There's, you know, suicidal thoughts. There's uh, high levels of depression. Those are all ways, those are ways of coping. And that part isn't necessarily bad in some ways. It's just trying to figure out what to do with all that emotion. If it gets shoved down, you can't help but completely check out and watch three hours of a show on Netflix because your goal in that is I simply don't want to have to feel what's going on. And let me tell you, it is effective for a time being. But when you come back to life the next day, you're like, oh, shoot. So then there's a lot of shame. And you have this cycle of I feel a lot of vulnerability, I hold it inside, and then you release. Boom, something big happens in your life and you act out in some way. And then you are like, oh no, like I got to hold that together. That's really shameful. Then you hold it together and then it builds, 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 builds. And then boom, you act out again. And it's this cycle um, that happens over and over and over again. And how you get through this is not to cut off a part. It's to learn to welcome it and get to know it and understand it. Okay, so that part that's more vulnerable, healing doesn't happen by cutting off that part. And I I really think that a lot of leaders, when they come to me, they're asking me, Andy, there's this vulnerable part of me. Can you help me chop the head off of him or her so I don't have to carry him around anymore? And I tell them, "Um, no, (laughs) because if I do that, I will have to cut you in half because that's a part of you. And I won't do that. I want you to be emotionally whole, which means we got to get to know that guy or gal and figure out. What do they struggle with? What do they need from you? How, what do they need from other people? Why do they carry those burdens? And when we can, re- when we can do that, that part will naturally calm down a little bit. I always use the analogy of, uh, if, uh, if you came over to my house, Kyle or Jennifer, and you know that I have three boys and I, you know, let's say my oldest boy is acting out a lot and he's being inappropriate or he's, he doesn't put on this mower image, this family image. And I say, go up to your room. And you come over and you're like, well, don't you have a third son? And I'd be like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't belong in this family. Imagine what he would feel like up in his room. Do you think that his loneliness, his anxiety, his fear would get better or increase? Definitely increase. Definitely increase. But if I go to him and I say, hey, you're part of this family. I know you struggle. I'm not quite sure why, but you belong here. I welcome you here. Come to the dinner. We'll figure it out. 
his anxiety and his depression and his fear would probably minimize because of his ability to feel known and heard and connected. And, and we can do that to ourselves. So long kind of analogy, but that's basically what I was talking about, Kyle, when I came and spoke. And once again, these aren't all my thoughts. This is, you know, something called internal family systems. These are all a bunch of models that I've learned. I just kind of, I'm the guy who just takes a bunch of things and makes something new from it. So um, nothing here is original, but I try to package it in a way that's kind of fresh and understandable. Super helpful. I have pages and pages of, of notes. So <laughs> thank you for uh, taking it all, packaging it in a way that uh, definitely resonates and I can understand. So you talked, you've said it a couple of times that really what I'm gathering, the key is to really know thyself. Mm. But if you, if a leader is listening to this and is like, wow, this is really me. What is the first thing that that leader should do? Hmm. Probably call you. <laughs> yeah, or call anybody. They don't have to call me. I'm not the best fit for everybody. Sure. So I think that I am good at what I do and I feel confident about what I do. But sometimes, you know, there's other people who do better or just as good a job as me. I think if you're at that point, that's telling you the time is now. Life will get busy. Something else will come in and you will bury it and kind of move on. There are a couple types of people. When I typically speak, there's a category of people that doesn't want anything to do with what I have to say. They don't believe in it. They don't acknowledge it. They don't feel like they need it. That is not my client because they are not ready. When we, know, when we talk about stages of change, I know all this because I was a personal trainer. <laughs> stages of change, someone who is not ready to change over the next six months. The only thing you can do for that person is continually feed them education, 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 blogs, posts. You just get it into the culture, okay? So that's why I want to work with high-level leaders because if we can get into the culture, we can start to shift those people to the next stage, which is I'm thinking about change in the next six months. I'm not quite sure what that looks like. And then there's uh, the preparation stage, which is I'm ready for change, okay? So you're kind of leading people along the stage. If you're in the stage where you're like, I think I'm ready to do this work, you are ready. The next thing you have to do is ask for help. <laughs> Not everyone's going to pursue you like I'm going to pursue you. Okay. Now, if we meet, <laughs> you start talking, I'll probably pursue you and ask kind of how I can support you. But the reality is you have to take that next hardest step and actually say, my time is now. I need some help. I don't know what's inside. Okay. That's the first thing you can do. And you can do that with a therapist. You can do that with me. You can do that with a lot of different people. But the biggest thing is that you acknowledge that and you move through that. Clients who don't face that don't progress in the coaching that I do with them. So clients who come in and still want to be put together, still want to fight and resist that there's something going on inside, they come in because the problem's big enough, but they never get the results because they're still fighting that the entire time. But if you're at a place where you're ready to acknowledge, now is the time. I want to do work. I want something more out of my life. Now is the time. I'm just absorbing everything you said that that's that's great there is I mean they're definitely even when I think about my own journey my own things like there definitely are stages where mm -hmm. you if you check in with yourself you, and you're being real honest you can tell yourself like I'm I'm not in a place where I'm ready yet mm -hmm. and that's okay because we all go through those stages um, that's why I'm hoping to change culture so that we can kind of lean into that a little bit more for people we can educate them a little bit more 
so yesterday on yesterday's show, we were talking about um, doing values exercises with the Senate and and starting really high level to help have a, a bigger conversation about values. And and I love what you're sharing about your goals of wanting to go, you know, as high as you possibly can to work with those leaders. Is there like, do you have a dream client or is there a dream person? That- oh, let's see. The people who think of like, I'm going to use some like cultish personality types, but this will give you an idea. Think about like a Tony Robbins or an Oprah Winfrey or Brendan Bouchard. All the people <laughs> who are there to teach people those skills to be there for them to be real because they're not, that's not really who they are. When I coach, there's a part of me that's coming out, but that's not Andy who I go home with my family and friends with. It's really to go up and to provide spaces for actresses, actors, people who are there on a large platform for people um, to let them know, hey, you got to have a space to process the things that you can't publicly in front of other people. Um, And listen, I have that for myself. I work with a therapist on a biweekly basis I have for the last 10 years, basically off and on. I need that person. I'm not going all the way up and saying, oh, I'm going to be at the top now. I don't need anybody. I need someone consistently. And the day that I stop doing that work or needing that help, I'm in a bad spot. Yeah. Good. Well, you put it out to the universe. I'm sure you've done it a few times. So uh, (laughs) I'm excited to see. So we have about five minutes left and we have some questions that we always ask everyone. They're not related to what we were just talking about. They're just more of fun for Kyle and I. Um, and we're keeping a list of all of our guests to to publish the the list um, at some point. So, Kyle, do you want to start with your question? Yeah. So, what is your favorite book of all time? Oh man, these are hard questions. <laughs> I know. A book that was really transformational for me was actually Homer's Iliad, and that sounds really funny. But before that stage, I didn't think that I was good at learning or reading. And then I read Homer's Iliad and I really loved it. I named my son Achilles based on that book. So that book just really shaped me and it built confidence in me that I can read and understand complex books and kind of poetry type books. And it made me appreciate kind of the archaic literature um, that I really came to love and understand. I love the answers to these questions. (laughs) It's fascinating. I know. And that is a big book and an undertaking. It is. And I will be honest, I got the book that has like all the notes in the backs so that if I didn't know something, I could look back and it would give me an indication of what's going on commentary. Yeah. I think it's, that's important and probably much richer experience than trying to like strong arm your way through the whole thing. All right. So for my question is, um, looking back in the last year, going through COVID, what's one life lesson or experience that you had or learned that you're going to take with you for the rest of your life or hmm. foreseeable future? Success and money is not something that you can just make happen. It's such a vulnerable process where you can't make someone book you. <laughs> yeah. um, and the reason is I lost 90% of my income at the early stage of COVID because I was a public speaker majority. And then I had this booming kind of fourth quarter that I never expected. And I just planted seeds. I, I planted and I watered and that's all I can literally do. And that has been the most freeing thing for me is to not worry about what's coming in next month, but just to say, I'm going to plant the hell out of this ground and I'm going to water it like crazy. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I cannot control someone paying me money. I cannot make anybody do that. 
<clears throat> and that's a freeing experience. Yeah, that is, that is right, so <laughs> relatable and true. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, and um, everyone who teaches you that there's a there's marketing and there's different things you can do, but all that is is watering. Anyone who gives you the solution that this is how you make money is lying because you cannot make people give you money. Unless you're the IRS. Yes. But <laughs> and even then there are many people yeah. <laughs> who do not. So um, point taken. Cut that part out. Yeah. <laughs> Great, Andy. So for anyone listening, um, how do we connect with you, get in touch? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can connect with me on there. My website is andymauer.com. It's M-A-U-R-E-R. Um, exciting news. I am working on getting a podcast up and running, hopefully over the next couple months. Really looking at shorter episodes, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, answering questions that I hear so frequently in my room from the cl- real clients that I actually work with. I want it to be extremely tangible, precise, and then doing a couple interviews here and there. So I'm going to have some things coming up for people who want more. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. It was a fascinating conversation. I, I, I definitely got a lot out of it and I'm sure uh, anybody listening uh, has as well. Uh, thank you for listening to the Future of Work Water Cooler Conversations radio show and podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Burwell and Kyle McIntosh. We are off to continue building better communities where people and businesses thrive and shining a light on local business leaders who are defining what a healthy and productive workplace looks like in Arizona and beyond. To be a part of the conversation, join us for a tour of the Max 6 Entrepreneurial Center in Tempe, Arizona, and go to max6.com.